All right, Julian, you're going to need to take out the guard. And wait, uh, who brought these guys in here? Well, now that you're involved in this episode of Bank Heist, you're going to need to be involved in ours. What's up, everybody? It is Jordan from Off The Top Podcast. I'm hella excited to do this episode for you guys. And word on the street is this is going to be our best one yet. How's it going, Julian? Doing pretty good. Um, You listeners have a little bit of the blueprint to the foundation of how some of these robberies were taking place and occurred from my research really interesting stuff. Um, We're going to have three different heists and robberies that took place in the past 20 years, and hopefully you've never heard of them. And without further ado, let's jump into the first one. So we're going to be talking about the Dunbar Armored Robbery. And so this happened in 1997 in Los Angeles, California. And at the time, it was the largest cash robbery in the United States, which is like pretty crazy. And the Dunbar building itself is essentially kind of hinted at in a lot of movies. The The Dunbar was set to be one of the best armor facilities in all of America at the time. It's in L.A. It's you know, a noticeable building. You see trucks going in and out of. And so you if you can picture this image of, you know, bank heists in movies, this is very similar or deposit centers. This is very similar to what it would look like. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Dunbar or how we kind of move money around in this state, we have these huge, huge armored trucks and security companies that will take money from, let's say, a a store or a bank and then transport it somewhere, hold it for a second and then transport it somewhere else. So they are heavily invested in the security of making sure that this money stays in the right hands and doesn't go obviously get gets robbed. So this is why this particular case is so interesting is how did these guys get in and rob the security company for almost 19 million dollars back then which would equate to about 28.9 million dollars in 2017 money. And what Jordan's alluding to also is that this was in 1997 and it wasn't 1950 or 1940. Like technology was up to date. There had been a lot of bank robberies beforehand. They knew how to track their money. They knew the tight schedules. They knew all the angles, the ins and outs to have as much safety and security when dropping off these sums of money and these, you know, um, as a little bit more valuable sequential bills or bills right from um, print, essentially. And there's a ton of moving parts that happen. And this was 20 years ago. So it wasn't, you know, you walking in and sticking up the bank. It was very, very careful research that had to be done, almost as if it was going to be an inside job. I'm going to do it the fun way, Julian, and tell them about the bank robbery and then tell them how and who did it. How about that? So I'm in. This is going to start with, I'll tell you the guy, at least. Uh, So the mastermind behind this all is Alan Pace. And so he got about, I think, four of his best childhood friends, and they set out to rob this place. So on the evening of, or I mean, the night of September 12th, 1997, they get in to the Dunbar Security Center without any, you know, without 
breaking a lock without doing anything like that. And in the security center, there's obviously cameras, so they swivel. These guys were good enough to know the timing of these cameras and slip by as they oscillated the other way. Just expertise on point, they waited in the break room knowing that the guards had their lunch break at 12.30 a.m. First off, it sounds like this is either probably your most skilled bank robber ever or somebody who just had an Adderall subscription and had about, you know, six months to write all this stuff down somehow. And it, so far, timing the cameras to when they swivel, knowing when the guards are rotating for their shift is very similar to a video game mission where playing the game, you're like, there's no way people could actually do this. Like, I've already failed this mission four times and, you know, I get a restart. So these guys, you get one shot, right? These guys did it perfectly on the first time to get to this break room and ambush these guards around 12.30 a.m. The precision of these, like this team to get in unseen, know exactly when they need to do X, Y, and Z and knowing when to expect people is on another level. And so another thing that they knew about this place is that they knew that on Fridays they left the bank vaults open at Denbar because of the large amounts of money that they're moving in and out. So all they had to do, they didn't even have to get into the vault as far as break in. They just need to needed to rush the guards in the vault. So they did that, subdued, subdued them, and then loaded millions of dollars into a, a waiting U-Haul truck that was manned by another team member. And when they were doing this, first off, they knew what the high denomination bills were. So they went for, you know, like your hundreds, twenties, things like that. And they also knew to step bypass the non-sequential or only go for the non-sequential bills. Because if you went for the sequential bills, then that would be able to be tracked. And then with all of this happening, they also took the security, security video recordings that were held in two different places in the compound. So if you can wrap your head all around that, I think they're getting an A plus from a uh, good old Uncle Jay when it comes to bank robberies so far. With how strategic this plan was, it... This is where the discrepancy when I was doing my research of the U-Haul. But, you know, U-Hauls aren't fast. They aren't quick getaway vehicles. But everything else was timed down to the exact moment to understand if we do this right, we don't need a crazy getaway. We don't need to elude the cops. We'll just load it into this U-Haul. We They loaded up in about half an hour, loaded a ton, I mean, 18, 19 million at that time into a U-Haul and took the film and and we're out. So a really smooth experience for them. And they're probably riding on high once they got out of there. Another thing to think about, what we just described to you all went down in about a half an hour. So the tightest window, they basically got into this place, subdued all the guards, got the money, took out the security videos, and got out in the same amount of time that you would watch your your favorite TV show. You, you're probably saying it now, wow, that's a really great planning. These guys are professionals. Well, it, it's almost, it's too good to be true. It's too good to not give away how they did it. Obviously being so flawlessly executed, even the police had the suspicion of this has to be an inside job. And this Alan Pace guy, 
and this is the big, you know, I need a little drum roll. He worked for the Dunbar facility as the safety manager. So he was in there. He was taking pictures of this place. He was scoping it out for months. You know how they did it so well? It's because they had an inside guy with Alan Pace. And what's also surprising to me for being the safety inspector, that he was able to convince four of his childhood, four or five of his childhood friends that they were going to rob one of the most armored facilities in all of America and in LA for $19 million. And they were all like, you know what, Alan, you are our guy and we are going to step into the fire with you. And they pulled it off for a, a long period of time. What the timeline looks like is the heist went down. They lied low for, I think, about six months while basically you would imagine that the cops were doing their investigation. And one of their favorite people to talk about at that time was Alan Pace. So what happened is the U-Haul wasn't rented under his name. Uh, the cash was placed in an undisclosed location and they basically had enough cash to, you know, live off of or like a just, you know, like I think a couple grand. But then eventually when the heat died down, they started laundering the money through real estate and phony businesses. You know, they laundered their money. They were smart enough to know how to do that. And this is where they get caught. You have four, you have a five to six variables in each person and all of you are laundering money. So it happens. One of Alan's buddies um, accidentally slips up and gives a real estate broker one of the original cash straps and gives it to a real estate broker. This real estate broker goes, cool, I got my money, takes it to the bank. Bank tries to deposit and it triggers that it was stolen from this heist in 1997. It's just so, it's so crazy that little thing set it off. Because if you think about it, there was, they've kind of were very, very careful up to this point, even to the fact of they found out that they had sequential bills and burned them. It's so crazy that that small thing, and granted, I feel like that's, that's a very, very, you know, foolish thing to not, or to look over is, yeah, let me just uh, leave these basically like straps to this cash that happened to be in this Dunbar robbing. Like nobody will suspect that. But obviously after that happened and the guy's name was uh, Eugene Hill, Mr. Hill met up with the police, obviously arrested him. And then that guy sang like he was uh, some sort of opera singer at an opera hall. That's how the Dunbar heist was. You know, they were found out. Um, there was still a large portion of money that they couldn't find because it was laundered or they were keeping an undisclosed location. But I mean, that is almost as seamless as a robbery can get without, you know, with getting caught. There's probably a ton of robberies that, you know, take a ton of money and they aren't caught. And we'll do a podcast on those ones as well. But for now, that one was a very, very strategic heist that almost was perfect. And for those of you who are wondering, Mr. Pace got 24 years in prison. So still in there right now. So Alan, if you hear if you're hearing me right now, you know, I want to give a big shout out. Somebody put ramen on your books, I hope. And, uh, you know, listen to more off the top radio podcasts. This next one, I thought the name was super cool. And this is going to be the Knightsbridge robbery. So in 1987 in London, 
the Knights Bridge Security Deposit, also known as the most secure building in the world, was robbed. How did they do it? We'll let you know. And just a side note, I've definitely, you know, I've been across living in London. I know exactly where Knightsbridge is. So it's a it's a very, very interesting to, you know, like think about how all this went down, a place I've seen. So we have this just pure, just an absolute Boy Scout slash choir boy. And I'm going to just botch this, but Valerio Vietchi. And uh, you can tell that this man's not from Iceland. He's from Italy. And this little star had a kind of predilection for robbing and kind of had a gangster lifestyle. And he was a a well-known Italian gangster that we're going to call the Wolf. That's the nickname he was given, the Wolf. And, you know, when he shows up in London, he is wanted for already over 50 armed robberies. So this dude is already committed a ton of robberies and is the main suspect. And I mean, he's on a hot streak. So why not push your luck a little bit further and test the most secure building in the world in 1987? A lot of you guys are thinking, okay, this is foolhardy. We heard this last one. This last story was, you know, like really precisely done. But if you were going to go after the most secure building in the world you better have something nice and an ace up your sleeve maybe a couple and one of those aces up his sleeve of the wolf's sleeve is eventually he ran into a gentleman called perez latif and this perez actually happened to be the director of the security deposit where all this was going to go down and he also happened to maybe be in debt and cocaine trouble as well. So you can see how things might have went from there. The way this is kind of staged, the way I picture in my head is very similar to the Joker's first entrance into the Dark Knight series. Heath Ledger's Joker. And so there are, you know, two of his guys are posed as prospective clients, him and another one. And then one guy is dressed as the guard who's turning away people at the door. And their guy, Perez, the director at the time, um, walks them down to the vault. While he's walking them down to the vault, the guard places a temporary close sign on the front door of the bank, um, knowing that it's hopefully only going to take a little bit of time to do so. Um, And they figured out the rotating shifts of the guards at this point. I'm glad that you mentioned the like closed sign at the at the front of the door because I thought that that was uh, pretty thoughtful and a point that shouldn't be looked over just in case there were people in there. And another thing too is this deposit like business and box these boxes were underground. When this is happening, you don't need to be very quiet. All you need to do is make sure that nobody comes in in the middle of it. Basically, what happens is eventually when they get down there. They stage a pseudo robbery for their real robbery, tie Perez up, tie up the other guards. And another thing, too, that I was doing research on that was mentioned is that Perez actually happened to disable the surveillance cameras at that time, too. So there was no footage of them breaking in and doing this stuff. So basically, they just had to make sure nobody else was coming in. Everyone was subdued. And then they 
could have at it with these security deposit boxes that had crazy amounts of just money in them. They chained these guards together that were down there and they managed to raid 113 of 4,000 safe deposit boxes. So they only got to 113 of those. At this time, that is an estimated, no one knows exactly what was in those deposit boxes besides the clients, but some of those clients at the time were lying and were holding things in there for you know tax purposes or to hide out on their taxes, so some pretty valuable objects. And this was estimated to be 60 million euros, which is equivalent to $98 million at the 1987 exchange rate, just from 113 boxes. I just want to, too, I think it's important to describe how this actually happened. So the the process of them getting into these security deposit boxes, because obviously you can't just say open sesame and these bad boys open up, was that they had a pretty like structured almost assembly line of taking these down so one person would smash them with like a basically like a chiseled filed hammer head smash it and then another person would like extract out everything and pull the stuff out so they were doing this for 113 like julian's 113 boxes successfully like julian said and they got out but the one thing that they left there was the wolf left a bloody thumbprint from the smash and grab tactic. Not not very clever. Um, it sucks for him. They essentially, the guards had to switch at a certain point. So they evaded and got away from Knight's Bridge. The new guards come on shift. They see that they've been robbed. They call the police. The police find this fingerprint. Um, the man wanted for 50 robberies obviously is on in file in some sort of way. They pin it to him. But by this time, he has fled to Latin America and is detained there. And eventually, long story short, he ends up getting out of prison in 2000 and dies in like a hail of bo- bullets, essentially, like goes down in his main style that you expect him to go the day he gets out of jail. Yeah. And just so I want to paint the picture of the wolf too. This is this guy's personality. He didn't just escape to Latin America. The way he got detained is he went back to London to get his Ferrari Testarossa. They knew he was coming, locked him up and then sent him back to Italy he got out on a day, basically like a day release program where he could like go out in the day and then had to come back. This homie started to stage another robbery and thought that that would go well. Just think about that when you think about this uh, just absolute gem. And so now, without further ado, Julian, let us into our next one, which I feel like has some stupidity similarities to the wolf himself that that is being generous to these two guys um and what we're talking about is the agricultural bank of china robbery which i the reading this story was just absurd to me how how dense you have to be to do what they did i mean that is probably just like the briefest and best way to put it so let me jump into this in october 2006 so not so far off 
the uh, a young man by the name of Ren Zhao Feng was a manager at the one of the China's big four banks. He came up with this just absolutely genius idea. Ren was at the a manager at the Handen branch of the Agricultural Bank of China, and so he decide he thinks it's a good good idea to steal you know, slowly take about 200,000 yuan from the bank with the complicity of two guards at this point. So he's taking this $200,000 and the guards are in on it. And he's like, cool, I've, you know, I've got this money. It was pretty simple. What can I do with it? We obviously have a scholar and a gentleman here. He does what everyone would do. He plays the lottery with his 200,000 yuan. And by the way, that amount of money, if you want to equate it to USD, is $26,000. So first off, he robbed a bank for $26,000 that he worked at, not for a lot of money, but then he wants to play the lottery. So obviously, you know, you, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, but this guy wins the lottery. So obviously, something's going right here for him. An unbelievable idea to steal $26,000 under the radar at the bank he worked at, like you said, put a good portion of it on the lottery and, and win, right? You're rolling high. Most people know the odds of winning the lottery are super low. So Ren wins the lottery. He's like, awesome, I've won the lottery. I'm going to give this the money I stole back to the bank without them knowing. He does it, and he's riding high. And you know what you're going to do when you're riding high? You're going to play the odds again. Exactly. A genius's work is never done, Julian. And so he goes back for round two, but this time much, a much, much bigger scale. And so he needs help. So he gets a, another guy who was a manager at the same bank of a name uh, with the name of Mei Xianjing. They basically set up this basically stealing of the money around March and April and steal about $4.3 million worth or 32.96 million yuan. So obviously these guys think that this is scalable as hell. So the thing here we're going to break down for you is they just stole $4.3 million from the bank they work at. And no one noticed over this two month, this month period, we'll say March to April, this month, two month period. No one noticed. Everyone was, you know, the two guards were in on it. These guys were doing their thing. $4.3 million, split it down the middle. You're at 2.15 each. I'd be happy with 2.15 million. I'm sure Jordan would be happy with 2.15 million for 30 days of work. But no, the geniuses decide to spend, I would say, 80 to 90% on the lottery again. And now at this point, they have millions of dollars invested into the lottery. Granted, their odds are up on winning the lottery, but obviously we all suspected this would happen. They didn't win, and so now they're in it deep. So what do you do? You steal more money. It's unbelievable what these guys are doing and you know their thought process to spend this $4.3 million that you've, you've stolen that isn't yours in the first place, but no one notices. Spend 80 to 90% of it and say, you know what? I think we'll win the lottery again. And a fun fact for you, um, you know, the Handan area 
had record lottery ticket sales for that lottery ticket cycle. And we all know why that happened. I don't even think somebody could write this, to be honest, Julian. It seems like such a what the hell story. But let's pick up where we left off. They steal more money and now they kind of scaled it back. They're like, hey, you know, let's let's not be so big this time. Let's just steal two point three million dollars or 18 million yuan. So obviously these guys are being very prudent, making smart decisions at this point. And on April 14th, they spend 14 million yuan in one day buying lottery tickets. That's like, I honestly don't even know how, how you buy that many lottery tickets in one day. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing or what, your, what their thought process is on this. And, you know, we're going to say the obvious here. They don't win, right? So what is your course of action when the bank you work for is missing a ton of money at this point? You've spent it all on the lottery. You haven't made any return, you know, and so, someone finds out that they're missing a good chunk of money. I'm going to stop you right there, Julian. You guys, you got to give these guys some credit. They actually did win and they won enough to buy a used Dodge Dart for about 12,000 12, bucks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure that they would be very upset if they heard you say that. But at this point, uh, you know, a couple of days later, Obviously, these industries of Titans finally notice that the money is gone. The police are informed. And so now we have these two dudes obviously freaking out and they have to flee. So they ended up getting some fake IDs, jumping in their sweet Dodge Dart and head out of there. Yeah, I don't know what you'd call it. I don't even know what the percentage on that winning is. But it's definitely more than a negative 95% return on what they put into the lottery. And, they, yeah, they get their fake IDs, they get out of the country, and it lands them on the most wanted list. So the first thing I'm going to say here is you, you notice the other two robberies we've talked about, right? The Dunbar and the Knights Bridge. Neither of these dudes ended up on the most wanted list after their, their robberies, like, no one had an idea or there wasn't even the Dunbar robber most wanted. It was just, you know, this robbery happened. These dudes landed themselves on the most wanted list, which is pretty cool, I'm going to say. I mean, I'm, I don't want to be on the most wanted list, but I guess that's the one, the one light part about this story is that they got some notoriety out of it. You got to think about the environment that they're in, too, in the fact of China doesn't play games. China's not messing around out here. They're not going to just be like, oh, you guys were just trying to have, you know, no, I get it. You know, boys will be boys and like, you know, pat them on the pat them on the butt and say, don't do it again. This manhunt ensued. And like Julian said, they were put on the most wanted list. And then two days later, about on the 18th of April, they were caught at a coastal on a coastal town and then were in charge for embezzlement. And then. You know, like I said before, and I'll say it again, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. They were sentenced to death. China doesn't mess around. Um, the crazy thing about this, too, was um, I thought they had, you know, spent a, a ton of this money. Somehow, in some way, the Chinese government recovered 5.5 .5 million yuan 
from this scenario. I don't know where they recovered it from or how they, you know, if these two guys left it somewhere when they were fleeing or what happened, but they got 5.5 million yuan back. So I guess cool for the government. And these dudes are just chilling on, you know, on death row. Exactly. And just almost a year. Um, so they ended up, you know, eating their last meal uh, April 1st. 2008 but it's just extraordinary that whole i mean i feel like this one is more of a caricature than it is a true robbery and a heist but it's just so it's almost so striking in the fact of what these human beings thought they could get away with obviously we all saw they couldn't simply the highest stakes of gambling there is winning the lottery stealing and trying to win again i'm gonna say Probably isn't going to work. Didn't work for them. Probably won't work for you if you're thinking about some strategies to rob a bank or a security deposit after this podcast. I think you said it very well. And without further ado, I want to thank you guys for obviously listening to the Off the Top podcast one more time. We are your favorite archaeologists. We are your guys. Um, Don't be afraid to reach out to us. We're on all 12 platforms. If you're listening in a certain spot or want to listen in a different spot, always leave a review and comment. We always really, really appreciate it. And, you know, without further ado, I just want to thank you guys. Yeah. Catch us on social at off the top cast. You know, if you do need someone, you know, need help robbing a bank, uh, me and Jordan have plenty of stories for you on how not to do it. And you'll hear that in another episode sometime soon. Uh, But thanks for listening.